Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from January 2015, Dr. Ursula Madalonis, Dr. Larissa Lee, and Dr. Alexi Wright weigh in on the latest information about prevention, treatment, and research for cervical cancer. Dr. Madalonis is a medical oncologist and the medical director for the Gynecologic Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. Dr. Larissa Lee is a radiation oncologist, and Dr. Alexi Wright is a medical oncologist, both with the Gynecologic Oncology Program and the Susan F. Smith Center. My name is Ursula Madalonis. I'm a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and um, I'm here with two of my uh, terrific and great colleagues, Dr. Lar Larissa Lee, who's a radiation oncologist from the Brigham Women's Hospital, um, and then Dr. Alexi Wright. Uh, medical oncologist from Dana-Farber, and we're here to talk about cervical cancer, um, talking about all aspects of it um, in terms of the etiology and, and what makes it occur to treatments, and uh, current treatments, and also what's on the horizon. So um, thank you both for, for being here today. So I'm going to start off with kind of just talking about the, the global nature of cervical cancer um, and really talking about the magnitude not just here in the U.S., but also worldwide. So, Alexi, can you can you sort of tell everyone what you know what you think about the incidents and you know it, what, what what's happened over the past several decades, and and where do you foresee things going? Sure, of course. So, cervical cancer in the U.S. Um, because we have such good screening is a relatively rare cancer. In comparison, globally, it's the second leading killer of women of reproductive age. Right. So it is a major um, killer internationally, and here in the U.S., because of both vaccination and also because of screening, it's less of a problem, though still certainly very important to those who have it. Right, right, exactly. And in terms of the U.S. cases, um, about 11,000, 12,000 per year? Yep, that's correct. And that's in pretty stark contrast with the global burden, which yeah. is approximately half of, well, 500 million cases per year and 280,000 deaths. So that it really is uh, a major worldwide problem. Yeah. And, and worldwide, um, you know, the, the countries that really don't have access to health care are the ones that are most uh, affected. Uh, where women are most affected, those would be Africa, mm -hmm. um, uh, South America. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, so those are the, the two main. So it's really a, it's a global problem um, in the U.S. Still, eleven thousand cases, and I think we would all agree that you know that's that's just too many. Um, and, Especially and in this imminently preventable disease, where a quarter in the U.S. are, are diagnosed with metastatic or incurable disease disease each year. Right. So we've had a number of questions that were that were sent in on human papillomavirus and HPV um, and how HPV is related to cervical cancer. Marissa, do you want to just start by, by talking about the, you know, how this virus mm -hmm. affects a woman's risk? Oh, absolutely. So the human papillomavirus, it's a very common virus and it's, it's estimated that approximately 80% of women are exposed to the virus at some point during their lifetime. Fortunately, the vast majority of women are able to clear their virus through an intact immune system. Um, but it's the, it's the smaller proportion of cases, it's a very small proportion of cases that the women are unable to clear the virus. It leads to HPV persistence. And the pathway, the carcinogenesis pathway, it takes many, many years 
to develop into a cervical cancer. And on average, it's probably about 10 to 15 years. And that's why screening is so important, because we can intervene before a cervical cancer even develops. Right, right. And um, how many, in terms of, of all cervical cancer, um, I'd say it's about 98, 99% mm -hmm. of all cervical cancer is, is HPV uh, related. Would you agree, Alexi? Yes, I would. So the <clears throat> vast um, majority are HPV associated and only a tiny fraction, like 1% or so, um, are not related to the virus. Um, there are about 15 different types that are associated with cancer. Not all HPV viruses are associated with cancer. Um, and as Dr. Lee said, the vast majority of women clear this spontaneously um, without needing further treatment. That said, for those where the virus persists, and the populations who are at highest risk are those who do not have an immune system that's intact, whether it's because of HIV or chronic exposure to steroids or um, other cancer treatments. In these women, um, the risk of it progressing over a long period of time is, is high. Yeah. And we, we got a question or two about guidelines, and I think um, guidelines, be, because we're not primary care doctors nor, nor gynecologists, um, we don't see women typically for pre-screening or for, for pap smears, but I think it's really important that, that we remember that the guidelines are changing mm -hmm. um, and that, um, that the guidelines don't, don't really um, capture everybody in terms of like, just because you're you know, use a guideline doesn't mean everyone has to follow it. And I think, you know, Dr. Sarah Feldman, who's one of our colleagues, um, is really an expert in pre-invasive uh, cervical neoplasia, basically what happens to the cervix uh, before cervical cancer occurs. So I think if any questions occur um, that come up from a, from a GYN standpoint that, that your pap smears are abnormal, uh, Sarah Feldman is actually a, a, very, a very good resource. Um, did you guys want to talk about the, the HPV test at all? Oh, absolutely. So, sure. Ursula, as you mentioned, uh, the guidelines are constantly changing yeah. because we do have this new HPV test that can be performed in conjunction at the time of a regular pap smear. Yeah. So for younger women, you know, those in the 21 to 30 age range, we, the gynecologist and a lot of the, the na well, the national guidelines reflect that these women should be screened every three years. You know, if in it, that means normal pap smears every three years. Obviously, if something abnormal is picked up, there is a whole different pathway that should be followed with closer surveillance or a biopsy if needed. And then in the women who are older now, we, they, the guidelines are recommending co-testing. So that means at the time of a pelvic exam, a pap smear is collected. And from that specimen, a HPV test can also be performed. And that is looking for those high-risk types of HPV that Alexi mentioned. There's a whole panel. Approximately 16 can cause and can, can cause a dysplasia or, or mm -hmm. eventual progression to cervical cancer, and, and that's what the test is really looking for. Right. So it's helping us to further pick up women who may or may not have an abnormal pap smear, but actually have the HPV virus. Right. And then I think the only thing I'd add to that is yeah. um, in older women above the age of 65, if you've had three um, concurrent tests that are negative over 10 years that um, many people are recommending that they don't need additional testing. This doesn't mean, however, that they don't need additional vaginal exams, since older women can often have yeast infections or other vaginal dysplasia. Right. Um, right. And that's one thing that we've, um, we're concerned about is, is, you know, with pap smears ending, women not getting appropriate vaginal health. Right, right. Um, moving a little bit, so we're talking about the vaccine, we'll talk about it in a couple of minutes, but I want to talk about um, 
risk factors for developing um, clinical cancer. So obviously, you know, being exposed to a high-risk HPV subtype, those are 16, 18, and there are a few others. As, as Larissa said, there's a not there's over, you know, close to 100 different H, HPV strains, but um, only about 10 to 15 of those are implicated in cervical cancer. Um, Alexi, do you want to talk about other other risk factors um, yeah, for cervix you know, cancer? Um, so it's skin-to-skin -skin transmission usually generally focused. So anyone who has oral, vaginal, or anal inter intercourse is at risk. It can be with just one sexual partner. Right. You know, I think that um, earlier onset of sexual partners, so first sexual debut before the age of 21 or 18, mm -hmm. Um, is higher risk, multiple sex partners, um, people are at higher risk, um, oral contraceptives just because, you know, you have greater exposure of vaginal um, and penile or vaginal-vaginal contact, um, as well as um, even condoms don't entirely protect because there's skill, still skin-to-skin -skin transmission. Um, so most people who are sexually active are exposed to the HPV virus. This is something that's often stigmatized um, by people and they worry, you know, who did this to me? But it's right. because of the long latency period that Larissa mentioned. Yeah. It actually can be 10 to 15 years before you actually see um, visible disease that's related to an earlier sexual contact. Yeah. Um, so, you know, fewer sexual partners. HPV vaccination is probably the most important thing that we can do for our children yep. and, you know, early 20-year-olds to, to prevent cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, any other risk factors? Um, uh, we we also we do think about cofactors such as smoking. Right. So mm -hmm. for whatever reason, women who smoke exactly. are less likely to clear the virus and more likely to progress to an invasive cancer, particularly right. squamous cells. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I would concur, and I think that is one that is one um, lifestyle change that we can recommend uh, to our patients who've been diagnosed with cervical cancer is is reduction in cigarette smoking, um, which which may have an implication on on you know risk of recurrence, but certainly also is 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 good general for general health in terms of reduction in other cancers as well. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the vaccine. Um, again, I we do want to delve into um, the treatment of cervical cancer too, but a little bit about the vaccine that it is now uh, widely available in the United States. Um, it's uh, has FDA uh, recommendation. Um, and that ideally uh, we would vaccinate our kids, uh, uh, not ideally, uh, I think it's rather mandatory that you, you vaccinate the kids prior to um, sexual uh, exposure just because you want to uh, be able to, uh, the, the immune system to develop antibodies um, to HPV prior to the body being exposed to, to HPV. Um, any other comments about the vaccine? Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, all girls and boys should be vaccinated before age 11 or 12. Um, and there's catch up, a catch-up period for men through the ages of 21 and women through the ages of 26. It's a three-vaccine, um, three-shot vaccine that's given over six months. Um, and often is confused with um, causing, you know, kids to become more sexually um, active. That is not true at all. This is a cancer-preventing vaccine. Um, that in my mind should really be decoupled from yep. sexual activity entirely. Yeah, I would I would concur. And I think the the important point is 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 vaccinating both um, boys, uh, and, boys girls. and girls, mm -hmm. uh, both. And you know, obviously HPV is is related to cervical cancer mm -hmm. and, and, and pre-invasive cervical disease, but it's also related to head neck tumors. 
Um, right. And that's another uh, HPV-related cancer. Mm -hmm. So important, uh, hopefully as our population gets more vaccinated, we might also see a reduction in, in head and neck uh, tumors as well. As well mm -hmm. as genital warts. Right, exactly. You know, so, Absolutely. so that yeah. will also help prevent genital warts in yeah. boys and girls as yeah. well. Any comments about the safety of the vaccine? The vaccine. That's been that's gotten mm -hmm. a lot of press, and there are a lot of uh, celebrities who um, you know denounce vaccines. Uh, so I think it's important that we talk about the safety uh, of the vaccine. Yeah. So this is an incredibly safe vaccine. There have been large studies done in Denmark and other countries mm -hmm. where um, kids and adults have been vaccinated without any serious, significant adverse events. So. Just remember, a cancer-preventing vaccine with few at few to none to zero adverse right. events. Right. Yeah, I agree. And that, that report was just in JAMA, um, just a few a few weeks ago, really showing uh, overall safety of a, of, a, of a population of young kids who were vaccinated versus uh, those not vaccinated, and they ended up, you know, having the, uh, you know, no, there were no. Uh, demonstrable adverse effects from the vaccine. So, um, and one of the interesting yeah. things is even when you're vaccinated against a few subtypes with the vaccine, there seems to be a carryover effect mm -hmm. against the right. other types of HPV. Right. That's important. Um, and so it pr protects not only against the types mm -hmm. that are being directly vaccinated against, but right. other types that might cause mm -hmm. um, warts or, or cancers as well. Right. Yeah. I agree. And I would add that we're seeing immediate effects of the vaccine at this point, even earlier than what had been predicted by these modeling studies, not in reducing cervical cancer cases yet, uh, but actually, you know, the precursor lesions or these precancerous changes that we usually see as part of the progression to an invasive cervical cancer. And that's, that's being shown over and over in large population studies that those are coming down rather rapidly. Yeah. That's great. Very exciting. Very promising. Yeah, very exciting. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, any more thoughts about the um, the vaccine, or uh, before we kind of move on to to treatment of, of actually, we're about, before we talk about treatment, we'll talk about the different kinds of cervical cancer. But any more mm -hmm. thoughts about the um, about the vaccine? No. Okay. So um, we got some good questions in um, over the past week. I'm just going to turn to them. Um, that was my number one question here. Are there different types? of cervical cancer. Um, so let's just start with there. So that's the first part of the question. And then secondly is, if so, are they treated differently? So um, uh, Marissa, you want to talk about the, the different types of cervical cancer? Absolutely. As, as Alexi mentioned earlier, 99%, 98, 99% of these cervical cancers are caused by HPV. Right. And there's two major types. There's a squamous cell carcinoma, which we see about 80% of the time, mm -hmm. and adenocarcinoma about 20% of the time. Um, and these are named based on the, type, the cell type within the cervix. They're both caused by HPV, and at this time, we treat them both the same, although we are starting to learn a lot more about the molecular biology and the profile of these cancers, so that may change in the future. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I should also, also discuss in this question is, is how we diagnose. Mm -hmm. So that was another, that was another question. Um, you know, I'll, look, I'll find it in a second, but basically, um, two, yeah, two, two main types, but then what are some of the presenting signs and symptoms of cervical cancer? Yeah, so a couple things, um, just to follow up. So first of all, um, the vast majority of cervical cancers are early stage, yeah. and they're often asymptomatic, which is why screening is so important. Um, signs that may harbor, you know, may signal that someone has cervical cancer is are really pretty common. Um, heavy vaginal bleeding, um, bleeding between periods, 
bleeding after intercourse, um, as well as kind of a watery, purulent, um, sometimes stinky um, vaginal um, discharge. The audience may not know what purulent means. Oh, I'm sorry. That's um, okay. You know, kind of a that's yellowy. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm here to kind of just edit, edit things here. <laughs> to keep me grounded. <laughs> exactly. um, a, right. Kind of a either a watery or yellowish um, discharge that's quite distinct from your ordinary um, discharge. And um, and and persistent, and sometimes mm -hmm. can can have an odor associated with it as well. One thing about the difference between the squamous cell cancers and the adenocarcinomas is that um, if we think about the cervix as a barrel that in the uterus up here, squamous cells are usually actually um, right down where doctors sample, whereas adenocarcinomas are up in the canal of the cervix. Um, they're formed as part of the glands, and so historically they were sometimes missed when, when they weren't brushed, and pathologists weren't as, um, weren't as um, tuned into looking for them. Now I think that's no longer a problem, but over the past few decades there's been a rise in, in the number of women who have adenocarcinoma. It used to be a tiny percentage, and the only reason that matters is there are slightly different clinical presentations. Mm -hmm. um, women who are diagnosed with early stage adenocarcinoma may actually have involvement um, of the ovaries or other distant right. sites. We've also done some work here at the Dana-Farber where we've looked at um, what the genetic mutations are underlying these two types of cancer. And while they share common um, genetic mutations, there's a few, a few differences between the two that are starting to point towards um, differences in treatment. You mm -hmm. launched a study um, that a, is a study that we have here open at the Farber where we're trying to actually um, capitalize on these unique molecular changes that we're seeing in these cerebral mm -hmm. cancer cells to actually treat them um, and hopefully uh, improve outcomes. Um, and I, th I expect yeah. we'll see more of that in the future. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. And I think that's a very good point is that right now we use um, clinical staging um, and a biopsy, but you know, hopefully, the as our as our our oncology field moves forward, um, that we're going to use more molecular, uh, at least some, somehow to to help us determine, you know, sometimes prognosis, mm -hmm. treatment decisions, um, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. But in terms of the presenting signs and symptoms, so we talked about you mentioned bleeding, uh, mm -hmm. abnormal bleeding. Um, I think another uh, symptom would be uh, painful intercourse, um, and then just pain, you know, just mm -hmm. pelvic discomfort. Yes. Um, and it's also important that cervical cancer is not um, really thought, it's thought about as, as a young women's disease, but, but it really can, can span the different um, decades. Mm -hmm. Marissa, do you want to do you want to comment on that in terms of the, the patients whom you see? That's absolutely the case. I mean, we fortunately not many women mm -hmm. present with local advanced disease, but those are the women who tend to get treated with radiation and chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And the tumors can grow beyond the cervix, and, mm -hmm. and that's what can lead to pain. Right. Uh, it can, they can also cause a blockage of the mm -hmm. ureter, which drains the kidney. That can lead to back pain in addition to pelvic pain. Um, and every once in a while a tumor is so advanced it will affect the bowel and the bladder function, uh, right. which, which mm -hmm. can be quite concerning as well. So patients may present with changes in their bowel habits, changes in their urinary function, or even blood in, in their bowels or, right. or in the urine. Right. Um, but as, as Lexi mentioned, though, I think we agree that most women who are going to be diagnosed with cervical cancer have early stage disease, mm -hmm. uh, which is very highly curable. Um, so the diagnosis is typically made uh, through a pap smear, so a, a you know a, a direct visual inspection 
of the cervix and, and a biopsy is obtained. Um, and that biopsy will tell you uh, the different types of cervical cancer. So we talked about squamous cell. Mm -hmm. We talked about adenocarcinoma. I mean, there are other types. There's an uh, entity called a small cell cancer of the cervix, adenosquamous type. Um, you can even have a lymphomas of the cervix. So it really, the, the pathology read um, is really critical. Um, and then typically, uh, once that diagnosis is made, women will go and undergo typically some type of um, imaging mm -hmm. or radiographic imaging. Do you mm -hmm. want to briefly talk about that? Because Larissa uses those to, to, to um, map treatment plans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, we've made great gains with these advanced imaging tools over the last five to ten years. We have very high resolution pelvic MRIs now. And the MRI has great soft tissue delineation to really so we can map out exactly where the cervical cancer is, its extent, its size, has it spread beyond the cervix, and that helps us make decisions about treatment mm -hmm. um, in terms of whether the patient's an appropriate surgical candidate, whether they're a radiation candidate, right. Right. so we can direct the appropriate treatment for each patient. Um, and we also use CT scans and PET CTs quite a mm -hmm. bit, and that's a nuclear medicine study. And the idea of the PET scan is to look at a metabolically active area and it's mapping the cancer. So we often will see a lot of uptake in the cervix, but we're also looking, is there any uptake in lymph nodes? Right. So is there any sign that this cancer is spread to the lymph nodes in the pelvis or to the abdomen or elsewhere? And that is very helpful. Again, it deciding whether a patient is a surgical candidate or radiation, and then if they are a radiation candidate. It helps us design our radiation fields, the appropriate yep. dose, so that we can better tailor our radiation recommendations and an individual's radiation treatment plan right. for the best outcome. And, and I know that, um, you know, as, as medical oncologists, we, we come into the, we're, we're not as major players in terms of the, the upfront treatment, but mm -hmm. I know from a radiation oncology standpoint, you and the surgical team will make a decision upfront Mm -hmm. um, does that woman go to surgery first, mm -hmm. um, or does she go to radiation first? Yep, absolutely. And the, and the physical mm -hmm. exam is a key part yep. of that evaluation, right. and we're, we often see the patients together or in tandem, and sometimes the patient's diagnosed with a biopsy under anesthesia. Um, and so we, we work very closely with our surgical colleagues, um, and then we uh, basically supplement our, our, what we find on exam with those advanced imaging tools, the PET scan and the MRI. Right. And sometimes a, a woman will go to surgery um, and have the cervix removed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then occasionally she will actually have to go for radiation therapy afterwards. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about those circumstances where, uh, you know, the circumstances under which you would recommend radiation therapy post-surgery. Absolutely. So the most common surgical procedure that's done for an early stage cervical cancer is a radical hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. And in that surgery, the uterus is removed, the cervix, the fallopian tubes, ovaries, and the surgeons actually take a margin of the parametrial tissues, which are basically the soft tissue ligaments that support the uterus and cervix uh, within the pelvis. And the pelvic lymph nodes are also removed. And the importance of removing the pelvic lymph nodes is to look, is there any microscopic involvement? Have, has the cancer cells, have they traveled to yep. the lymph nodes? And so we get information from the surgeon um, of what they found at the time of the operation. And then there's also a very detailed review of the pathology report to look at all those, uh, to look at the specimen. And what we're looking for is, were there lymph nodes involved? 
did the tumor extend outside the cervix and does it involve those parametrial tissues, which we can't always detect based on the MRI or the PET scan. And because this can be microscopic disease spread, so it's really below the detection of, mm -hmm. a, of a CAT scan or a PET or an MRI. Um, and then we're also looking for how big the tumor is. Did it deeply invade the cervix? Are there other pathologic risk factors such right. as lymphovascular invasion? So we put all of those risk criteria together to decide, is this patient at high enough risk that they might have a cancer recurrence if we don't offer radiation? And if we're worried about a cancer recurrence, then we talk to the patient about radiation with the addition of chemotherapy often. Right. And very occasionally, there can also be cells along the surgical margin That's where right. because mm -hmm. it's microscopic, the surgeon may not have been able to detect at the time of surgery that there was mm -hmm. cancer leading yeah. out. And in those women, we worry that there would be additional risk. Absolutely. I think it was untreated. Yeah, I agree. And I think it really speaks to the importance of, of having a team uh, mm -hmm. you know, really treat the patient because obviously every woman who walks through the door with cervical cancer we want to do our best job um, curing that individual of their cancer. So I think it's important to have a radiation oncologist who specializes in cervical cancer, a medical oncologist who specializes in cervical cancer, surgeons, gynecologic oncology surgeons, mm -hmm. um, who all they do all day is treat women with uh, GYN cancers. And I also, you know, the pathology mm -hmm. piece is very important Huge. is to really, as we do every Wednesday morning at 7.30, is to look at the pathology of all newly diagnosed patients mm -hmm. um, with a GYN pathologist in the room um, to talk about all these things that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, the margins, um, was there cancer present at the margins? Is there cancer present in the lymph nodes or in the blood vessels themselves? So mm -hmm. that's actually a very, um, a very helpful piece. Mm -hmm. um, Lexi, do you want to talk about the, how we as medical oncologists come into play for our patients? Yeah, so with early stage disease where there is involvement of the parametrium, as, as Larissa said, or lymph nodes, um, or a high risk of recurrence if left untreated, we will use cisplatinum um, chemotherapy to augment the radiation. And there have been five large uh, randomized clinical trials supporting um, a survival benefit for adding the addition of chemotherapy to standard radiation. Um, that's, that's where we come in for locally um, advanced cases. In the metastatic setting where unfortunately disease is incurable, chemotherapy is the primary um, treatment that's used. And over the past few years, we've learned um, that the standard chemotherapy that we've used for, you know, quite some time now is actually improved by the addition of Avastin or Bevacizumab, which is an anti-angiogenic therapy that's really targeting the blood vessels um, around the cancer cells. And, and that was a major advance to learn that women could live su substantially longer um, by adding that to the treatment of either recurrent cervical cancer, cervical cancer that's come back, or cervical cancer that is um, spread at the time of diagnosis. Right. That, that's great. And I, I'm just going to bring back our conversation to, to two questions that I'm going to kind of uh, bump into one around, I want to talk about the side effects of radiation therapy because it really mm -hmm. is a mainstay. And I always think, I always talk to patients that, that you know, what, what's curative in this cancer is surgery, surgical resection. Um, and then radiation therapy, you know, as, as medical oncologists, um, we can help radiation therapy work better by adding, by adding chemotherapy, but um, the surgeons and the radiation oncologists have the, have the curative therapy. Um, and then secondly, I want to talk about younger women and how we talk about younger women. Mm -hmm. um, but Larissa, uh, two questions for you, um, and I'm going to combine them. Uh, what, is, what are the common side effects of radiation mm -hmm. for cervical cancer? 
and how do you recommend patients cope with these side effects? That's one. Um, and then I'm going to loop, loop this second one in. What are the, some of the sexual side effects of cervical cancer treatment, and what are some of the ways to cope with these side effects? Oh, those both very important right, questions. Right. So in terms of the radiation treatment course, it's approximately eight weeks in length, so it's quite intense in mm -hmm. terms of the amount of time and, and the and that the patient will be coming in for treatment. So we begin with external radiation treatment. So in general, that's directed to the pelvic area, sometimes the pelvic and the area in the lymph nodes in the upper abdomen. And external radiation, it's daily treatment. It's given five days a week, usually over five weeks, but could be as long as six or seven weeks if we mm -hmm. need to give additional dose to, say, enlarged lymph nodes that are concerning on the PET scan. And that radiation treatment, it's given with the weekly chemotherapy as well. Right. And when we follow external radiation, there actually is an internal radiation component, which in our institution at the Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's, we do our, in, our internal radiations in most cases as an outpatient. So it's an outpatient procedure. It's done under general anesthesia. It takes about three to four hours. And the idea is we, we thread an applicator up through the cervix, through that endocervical canal into the uterus, and put a second applicator up around the cervix. Mm -hmm. And that's very advantageous because we can deliver a high dose of radiation directly to the tumor while not having a lot of radiation dose go to the immediately adjacent organs, and that's the bowel and the bladder, sometimes the rectum as well. So, so that, that's called intracavitary brachytherapy. And the side effects generally do build up, so they're cumulative over the course of those eight weeks. Many women don't have side effects the first few weeks, but most commonly we, we do see fatigue, we see bowel alteration, mm -hmm. uh, skin diarrhea. irritation, <laughs> diarrhea. You know, sometimes when women are getting chemotherapy, a lot of the anti-nausea medications can yeah. cause constipation. So there's, there is a lot of supportive care around normalizing the bowels mm -hmm. because patients may have constipation the first few weeks of treatment then struggle right. with diarrhea in right. the latter exactly. parts of the treatment right. part of the treatment course when they're going through treatment there's a lot of support mm -hmm. uh, you see the physician once a week at yep. a minimum there's also a nursing team that's dedicated to our gyn patients and and we we provide a lot of sort of supportive care and how to manage the diarrhea there's there's actually a whole radiation diet that you can follow it's a low fiber diet mm -hmm. where you're trying to minimize the amount of fiber in the diet so that you can slow the transit, uh, transit, uh, transit time through the, through the bowels. And that can go a long way. Yep. Um, and in some cases, people will need over-the-counter anti-diarrheal medications like mm -hmm. Imodium. Everyone's one will have to bump up and go to something prescription. Um, but that, that, is, that is a big concern during treatment because it can right. really impact someone's quality of life you know, it's, it can be difficult to work through the duration of treatment. If you are having a lot of bowel side effects, you can become dehydrated. So we're really aggressive about managing yeah. the bowels. And I think also we, we partner together. Mm -hmm. So we, we see the patients uh, as well weekly. Yeah. Um, Lexi, do you want to talk about the, uh, the, the medical oncology side effects of the mm -hmm. together with the radiation therapy? And, and Alexi is also, a, and, and actually both of these guys are quality of life experts and do quality of life studies to talk about the you know, the, the impact on sexuality um, and, and, other, and other quality of life, uh, you know, changes. Yeah, so with cisplatinum, um, you can get a lot of nausea, so we give people fluids, and we mm -hmm. also partner very closely to help manage the diarrhea. Right, right. Um, You know, I think some of the longer-term side effects that can happen with uh, radiation and chemotherapy is, is really um, scarring um, of both the vaginal canal as well as the bowels, and mm -hmm. so, 
um, after treatment, and you can speak to this also, many people struggle um, with sexual problems. You know, pain with intercourse, um, you know, fear of intercourse is, is very normal um, for people to go through. We try mm -hmm. to avoid this by counseling them ahead of time mm -hmm. um, with the use of vaginal dilators um, and the application of vaginal moisturizers twice mm -hmm. a week, um, as well as lubricants with sexual activity. Um, in some women, particularly younger women, um, will often give hormonal supplementation locally since it's not a, a cancer that's driven by hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is a major thing to talk to your doctor about. Right. I think many women are, are reluctant or embarrassed to talk about it, but this is, this is one of the few things that does not get better with time. It's something that we have to address proactively from the start mm -hmm. um, through treatment and beyond. Mm -hmm. yep. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a wonderful resource through the Dana-Farber Survivorship Clinic, and there is the Sexual Health Clinic as well. That's so right. in addition to talking to your doctor, we can actually put you in touch with this wonderful group to address all those issues. Yeah. Right, so. right. Experts in the field, Sharon Bober. Sharon Bober, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So we've got about 10 minutes left and a few more questions. Um, I, I want to also talk about um, specifically young women with cervical cancer and if they are diagnosed uh, in, the, in, the, in the future they want to have children uh, mm -hmm. and, and how treatment is evolving uh, for them. I don't know if you want to uh, discuss that briefly. Oh, also. yeah, it's absolutely the case. And in patients who are candidates who have early stage mm -hmm. disease, there are fertility sparing surgical approaches. Right. So rather than a radical hysterectomy, these women may have a conservative surgical excision of the cervix or a portion of the cervix with those surrounding parametrial ligaments. That's called a trachelectomy, and the pelvic lymph nodes are also removed. Mm -hmm. uh, cases, in patients who have very small microscopic tumors, sometimes they can just have a cone biopsy as well, and that can be sufficient treatment. Um, but there are cases where we are talking about radiation treatment because there's a risk of recurrence or because the tumor is more locally advanced. And you know, and when fertility is a concern, unfortunately, radiation and the chemotherapy that's given with it uh, takes quite a toll on, on the ovarian function. And so patients may go through treatment-induced menopause. So if, if that's the case, there are a couple things that can be done. One would be harvesting eggs mm -hmm. prior to treatment through an IVF center mm -hmm. um, and freezing those embryos for a later date. Um, unfortunately, after radiation, the uterus isn't able to carry a pregnancy, right. um, so right. we, you know, those patients would need to identify a surrogate carrier. Um, and in some cases, the ovary can actually be moved out of the radiation treatment field, and that's a uh, procedure called ovarian transposition or pexing of the ovary, mm -hmm. so that it does not receive the standard course of radiation that would be expected, unfortunately, to put the patient into menopause and to lose ovarian function. Right. And one thing that's changed over the past decade is actually we're beginning to be able, and, and centers like here are able to actually harvest eggs so that yeah. if a woman mm -hmm. has not you know, yet met a partner, yeah. you know, she can actually mm -hmm. save it the same way that historically we could um, bank sperm. And this, is, this has made a, a, a major difference so that people are able to actually um, preserve parts of the ovary and also yeah. eggs with and freeze them successfully for later use. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I just really I wanted to stress mm -hmm. this, the the young the young woman piece because it's so important. Again, really really um, driving home to the audience that every every patient has to be taken individually mm -hmm. um, and reviewed very carefully because mm -hmm. obviously we want ultimately uh, for the individual to to do well and to survive. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if we can do even better and preserve fertility, that would be terrific too. Mm -hmm. 
All right, the next few minutes, we're gonna, I'm going to run down these questions. Um, and if I think of more, I'll let you know. So this is an easy one. Um, this is a lob. Uh, is a hereditary factor to cervical cancer? My mother, grandmother had it. Am I more at risk? Alexi. So this is unlike other cancers, like ovarian and breast, where we really worry that there may be genetic syndromes, cervical cancer is not thought to be a disease that's inherited. Um, there have been a few tiny studies that looked at um, siblings and whether they're, they're at higher risk of getting cervical cancer. You know, I would say that that's very exceptional and there may be um, risk factors that predispose people to not clearing the virus, but in general, this is thought to be a, a disease that's caused by exposure to a virus and not something that can be inherited or passed down to your children. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, Larissa, as someone who has had cervical cancer, what is the best way to screen as follow-up care for the next few years? Should doctors rely on the CA125 blood test or stick to CT or PET scans? Mm. So we, we use PET scan mm -hmm. as, the, as a post-surveillance imaging tool, mm -hmm. and that's been nicely shown in, in various studies, many of them from the Washington University group and published mm -hmm. in JAMA, that shows that that's, that's really a wonderful marker to assess how the cancer has responded to treatment. How often do you do them? So we, we most commonly at that three to four month visit okay. after therapy is complete. Mm -hmm. If the patient has had what we call a complete metabolic response, so there's no uptake on the PET scan in the cervix that there was previously or in any lymph nodes or elsewhere in the body, that's actually the only PET scan that we need to yeah, perform excellent. because the prognosis is so good for these patients. Oh, that's so great. We, we still perform pelvic exams every three months for two years and then spread it out every six months to year five. But in general, um, just one, one PET CT. And the CA125 is, is not a useful marker for cervical cancer, so we don't use that. Right, right. okay. And if people develop um, symptoms that are, are worrisome for a disease recurrence, then we'll get additional imaging. Mm -hmm. But you're right, you know, after that one PET scan. Um, which can be helpful, it's, it's a prognostic PET scan mm -hmm. in the sense that when people, as you said, when people don't have any, any evidence of disease that's persistent, mm -hmm. we know they're in, a, in very good shape. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast, if people have persistent disease, then that will often, um, or new disease, that will often make us think very differently about their treatment strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one question I'm gonna ask, answer quickly in the last five minutes um, that I have, I'm gonna talk about um, Alexi's work, and she alluded to this before, and but also talking about you know really women who have had recurrent um, cervical cancer and, and how medical oncology as well as radiation oncology plays a role. But the, last, the second to last question is: it possible to have diffuse cervical cancer undetected by an isolated cervical biopsy? And unfortunately, it is possible. And I think Alexi alluded mm -hmm. to this before, especially if you have an adenocarcinoma that's up in the uh, in the cervical canal that may not be seeable or brushable by just a brush on the cervix. Um, these are harder tumors to detect, so yes, unfortunately that can occur. It's rare, it's unusual, but it can occur. Um, Alexi, uh, and again, last five minutes here, talking about what's new in treatment of, of recurrent disease. Mm -hmm. You already alluded to Avastin and how that's become standard of care. It's FDA approved as of um, this summer, 2014, adding it to, to chemotherapy um, for somebody who has recurrent cancer and that's in the absence of the use of radiation therapy. But what are researchers focusing on in regards to cervical cancer? Is there any exciting research you can share? 
Yeah, so there's actually been quite a bit of new research for this disease. Um, you know, I alluded to earlier work that we did together. Yep, actually, um, Alexi, Alexi did the, the extracting <laughs> DNA, pulling blocks. Yeah, you did so, it all. So work that we did where we actually said, you know, clinically we're seeing differences right. between these two major subtypes of cervical cancer, the squamous cells and the adenocarcinomas. Are there any genetic or genomic um, alterations that differ between these two? And in one way, an exciting finding that we found was that a third of them had a common mutation, suggesting that we might treat um, this mutation called a PI3 kinase mutation, um, similarly across the two disease types. Right. Um, we found, interestingly, that in the other type adenocarcinomas, there was a, a different mutation that was really only found there. Um, and this has subsequently been um, verified in other work, um, both at the Broad Institute here, yep. but mm -hmm. also um, in Denmark as well. And so we're starting to target those with targeted therapies, AKT yep. and MEK inhibitors, um, in clinical trials. Um, the other thing that I think is increasingly exciting is immune therapies. Yep. You know, we're Absolutely. starting to see this in Absolutely. other diseases. Correct. Huge yep. success in melanoma, for example. Mm -hmm. We're starting to apply this in cervical cancer as well. Um, it, it looks like um, anti-PD-1 therapies may be um, mm -hmm. candidates for treatment. Um, T-cell, activating the T-cells, you know, we know that the immune system is intimately involved in, right. in the integration of HPV um, in, in, or clearance of HPV, and so we think that harnessing the immune system to fight back against these cancers may make a major difference. And so I'd say in the next five years or so, um, I expect that to become a major part of, of cancer, cervical cancer treatment, and we already have exciting results coming out of NCI. Um, using some uh, T-cell um, therapies. Good. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to make a point that um, it's important for, so if somebody develops uh, recurrent disease, or you know, even if they're newly diagnosed, to have some, side of, some sort of a, a genomic um, screen of their cancer, um, it, it may or may not provide um, usable information, but for women who have recurrent disease, it, it sometimes can. Do you want to speak about, so we have a protocol called 11104, um, which is our profile screening test. Yeah, one of the most exciting things right now at the Farber is that any person who walks through the door can get a test um, that actually uses their tumor cells to see what the genomic changes are um, that we think may be drivers of those cancers or at least associated with the cancers. Um, currently, it's a free test, um, which is amazing, and it's allows us to actually think about whether there might be additional clinical trials that are available, although it's just a research test predominantly. Um, and I think in the future, it will definitely end up tailoring our treatments further. We know that um, patients who are referred to phase one trials, both here and other places, that are directed by their specific mutations do better than those who are just referred to phase one trials um, kind of randomly. So I think we're going to see major changes um, across cancers in this respect. And the fact that we're doing it for anyone who wants it right, right now right, is something right. that really sets us apart from other cancer yeah. centers. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those results, even though it's a research test, it's done on a, on a clinical trial or a clinical platform called a CLIA platform. So you can use the results to, to mm -hmm. plan treatment and, and as a eligibility fulfillment in the clinical trial. That's so right. for example, if there's a, as Alexi said, a PI3 kind of about to open um, an AKT that's specifically for gynecologic cancers, 
that have a PR3 kinase mutation. There's some aberration in that really important signaling pathway within the cell. So, you know, this is, it, it's important for us to do research on this, but it also can have direct implications for women um, right now. That's right. Yeah. Um, any any kind of um, wrap-up thoughts about where you think the field is going um, and to give really some, some hope to our audience about, about cervical cancer treatment? I mean, I think it's already, this has been an incredibly exciting period in the sense that we've seen the incidence of cervical cancer in our country drop. Um, you know, I think the addition of vaccines means that that's going to be, you know, have a huge impact. Right. Um, but inevitably, for those women who are diagnosed each year, we're also seeing major changes in treatments. You know, it mm -hmm. used to be just surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. We're now seeing targeted therapies, Im immunotherapies. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a promising time um, for this important disease. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Marissa? I absolutely agree. I mean, we've there's been big steps in the ways we're able to deliver radiation with the use of imaging and at the brachytherapy. We use the CAT scan, we use PET, we use MRI. And hopefully we're going to improve upon our therapeutic window too. And, and as Alexi mentioned, all these new exciting targeted agents and immunotherapy, there may be some role in combining with radiation and we can de-intensify our radiation mm -hmm. treatment. Right. And that may be able to reduce the side effects of treatment. Very, very exciting. Well, um, thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Ursula Madalonis, Dr. Larissa Lee, and Dr. Alexi Wright of the Gynecologic Oncology Program in the Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers at Dana-Farber. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.